Bob Hewish from the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. You're listening to GDP, the Global Development Primer, the podcast dedicated to all issues in international development studies. Follow me on Twitter at Professor Hewish. is back in Antigua de Guatemala with Ryan Isaacson. Now, Ryan Old holds a PhD in economics from the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, and broadly, he's interested in the political economy of international development, with specific focus upon agriculture, rural livelihoods, and food provisioning in Latin America. He's conducted research on market development, peasant livelihoods, and the cultivation of agricultural biodiversity market-led land reform, agri-food certification, and payments for environmental services, and the contemporary flex crops boom. Now, his current foci are on farmer vulnerability and the financialization of agri-food provisioning, and also the impacts of oil palm expansion upon food entitlements and water quality in northern Guatemala. So it's very fitting that we're able to get the microphone down in front of Ryan today, uh, because we are indeed in Guatemala. Now, he teaches three courses for the International Development Studies Program at the University of Toronto. Uh, that's the Political Economy and International Development, very popular course. I hear nothing but good things about it. The Economics of Small Enterprise and Microfinance, and finally, The Political Economy of Food. Ryan has a new book out called The Speculative Harvest, Financialization of Food and Agriculture that he produced with Jennifer Clapp. And Ryan, it is a pleasure to see you here in Antigua de Guatemala. Welcome to GDP. Thank you, Bob. The pleasure is mine. So, Ryan, you've been coming to Guatemala for 20 years, which seems to be a running theme that we heard with many people at the Conference of Latin American Geographers. Everyone seems to have been here for about 20 years. Uh, you're very familiar with the food, land, and life of Guatemala. Uh, in a nutshell, what is the agricultural scene in Guatemala about? Uh, I mean, <laughs> in a nutshell, that's a hard question to answer. Uh, and in part, that's just because it's such a, a differentiated landscape. Yeah. Um, and I think what that is actually in the physical differentiation where uh, Guatemala is a, tr a very dramatic landscape with, you know, the coastal area coming up to 4,000 foot volcanoes. Uh, the mountains, highlands like we're at the foothills of here are quite dramatic with a lot of uh, valleys in between there. And of course that creates a lot of uh, niches uh, for cultivating different types of crops. Um, so, and it also is differentiated by who controls what here in terms of you get a small number of large landowners controlling a huge amount of the best quality farmland, um, while the majority of uh, agricultural producers are crowded onto very small plots of relatively marginal land holdings. I know we don't want to go into this today, but it's obviously linked to the colonial practices in the country yes. um, and failed land reforms in the country we, and so on, right? Yeah, so we, we had George Lovell actually go over that okay, in yes, the last yes. podcast so, and, and sort of his eras of colonialism, and that's very much still uh, impacting how the rural landscape is 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 divided and, and challenged. Yeah, ways. yeah. So, so within this landscape then, I mean, if we're actually looking at crops grown, uh, you get many of the sort of the old-school elites, they're cultivating old-school export crops, crops like bana or bananas, coffee, sugarcane. Um, and then that sugarcane as well has been picked up by sort of the more new-school entrepreneurial elites, right. along with oil palm. 
Um, right. So these so quote unquote flex crops, which can be utilized for various sources, be it for food, uh, biofuels, uh, in the case of oil palm, uh, industrial purposes, makeup, and so on, right? So I get a sense, you know, again, Guatemala is incredibly diverse. Uh, you can be up in the Cuchimatani Mountains where you're pretty much, uh, you know, down to, you know, kind of potatoes and corn growing growing there, and then there's sort of this Piedmont area uh, in just getting in the highlands where the coffee tends to be where, where, it, where it grows, but then you have, you know, bananas and, and the sugarcane. I'm guessing the sugarcane is more of a on-the-coast, low-lying, tropical very humid place. Where is this oil palm coming from? The oil palm is largely cultivated in the northern portion of the country. So we're getting up by Chiapas uh, now. So if we're getting close to the border with Mexico, the Petén, uh, Alta Verapaz, they, these are the various northern provinces in Guatemala, uh, Baja Verapaz to an extent, that's where you see a lot of the oil palm taking place. And much of this was, uh, you know, this land uh, had been forested up until relatively recent, recently up until the 1970s, and then you get some road building campaigns and initial pushes to sort of, this is a way of uh, placating peasant demands for land as sort of shipping them up north, so here's this new frontier. And so land was distributed to peasants, but then with the oil palm boom, uh, you get a lot, well, I mean, there's a lot of history in here in yeah, terms yeah. of, of uh, you know, land titling, which essentially means exchangeable, marketable permits, um, and with that also became a lot of sort of, you know, quote-unquote legal displacements of agricultural producers, either by economic stress or strong-arm manipulation or just simply a lack of desire to cultivate farming. Much of this land was, uh, within recent years, has been, recent decades really, has been acquired by a new class of elites as well as uh, military elites as well. Really? And so this is, you're getting a tremendous expansion of oil palm plantations, but yeah. also if one were to talk about the phenomenon of land displacement and land grabbing in Guatemala, a lot of that is happening in these northern lowland part of the country. And again, it's repeating this experience where those who are working on the land are not in control of it, basically. There's indeed, a, indeed. And I mean, there, there are a few uh, experiments with contract farming of oil palm with... I wouldn't say small scale, but maybe medium, small, medium scale agricultural producers who will sell their oil palm on a contract basis mm -hmm. to uh, uh, oil palm processing facilities. Okay. Uh, but for the large part, yes, these are large plantations, hired labor, uh, fairly precarious labor, and awfully difficult labor. And and oil palm, I mean, you can't make a comfortable diet just on oil palm. So this is. This is farm uh, farming here in this country. Coffee, the same thing. Bananas, sugar, all of these. Pro they're they're export oriented, and there and there you've got to then ask the question: If there's so much land and labor dedicated to export, how does this impact food security in the country? Well, uh, you know, I mean, the logic that unfolded in over recent decades was, you know, up and throughout the. You know, the early history of the country up until the 1980s, there was a tremendous stress on food self-sufficiency. Right. Um, and the government really pushed for self-sufficiency self-sufficiency in the staple food, corn, as well as beans, um, but also wheat. And uh, a lot of that was subsequently underdone with uh, neoliberal restructuring in the 1990s, where a lot of the supports that had encouraged uh, you know industrial production of maize and wheat 
were undone, be that chemical fertilizers, be it uh, access to seeds, be it research uh, and extension services, uh, those were all rolled back. Right. And in its place, and at the same time, there was trade, selective trade liberalization. So it opened, it lowered trade barriers on maize and wheat, for instance, and you saw a dramatic influx of maize and wheats from the north. Lower priced, um, and but also fairly uniform in quality, whereas uh, traditional maize varieties in Guatemala are incredibly diverse. Yes. And that diversity is key to uh, resilience yep. of a food system, but also uh, fills, fulfills various niches in a peasant or uh, in indigenous diet, which is largely based upon maize. But I, I go astray here. How does this relate to food security? Sure. Um, the logic here being is that Farmers, rather than cultivating these staples that at a relatively, comparatively high cost to say the United States, they could sell something else and buy cheap food from the U.S. This is the law of comparative advantage. You know, if we look at the opportunity cost, Guatemala has a comparative advantage in unskilled, uneducated, small-scale farmers. They have an abundance of them. Right. Um, and so the logic was, well, we can have these small-scale farmers switch from cultivating maize to cultivating new export crops, crops for which there's high demand in the US, Canada, Western Europe, and also which will fetch high prices. What do we mean here? A dramatic expansion in the production of broccoli, a dramatic production expansion in the production of strawberries, a dramatic expansion in the production of green beans, a dramatic expansion in the production of snow peas, melons, and all these so-called non-traditional fruits and vegetables. Right. And so the idea of shifting farmers into, say, producing crops that are staples for them, producing new export crops, so quote-unquote non-traditional crops, which would complement uh, those conventional export crops. How does this affect food security? Differential impacts here, right? Yep. Not all peasant farmers are the same. So the initial adopters, they did quite well initially. They were able to generate tremendous returns, food security, you know, various studies in terms of their food security, access to food, and uh, the dietary quality of their diets increased. Uh, consuming more meat, uh, consuming more vegetables, uh, consuming more proteins in general. But this oftentimes came at the expense of their poorer neighbors as those people expanded their agricultural operations. Um, now, over time, however, as this uh, practice of non-traditional agricultural export spread to other countries and those markets have become more competitive, uh, the farmers who have stuck with that over time haven't fared so well. Right. So in the 1990s, one starts to see decreases in their food uh, security, ability to access food, but also the quality of their diets. And it turns out those farmers who stuck with the traditional maize and beans have done much better over time. Isn't that wild? Yeah, and yeah. I, think, I think that just shows... Uh, at the best of times, agriculture is a very vulnerable business. If it's in the global north, global south, there's yeah. all these vulnerabilities that come with it. And you know the crops that you were talking about in terms of exporting, it sounds like a real tasty salad. Once you put it all together, the snow peas and strawberries and other sort of... Lettuce and cabbage. Lettuce and cabbage. <laughs> I'm getting hungry. But uh, if you abandon the staples, then when economic shift or climate emergencies or natural disasters occur staples aren't there, then you really get this vulnerability. Indeed. I mean, it's, there's, what this highlights is, A, exposure to market mm -hmm. uncertainty and the volatility and the, uh, and, uh, 
the ambivalence of markets. Yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, markets aren't a guarantee. Markets don't guarantee access to anything. Markets no. are what you know. If you want something in the market, you have to be able to pay for it. That's right. Versus if you're growing your own food, you know, you have a right to that. So, um, and many yeah. farmers didn't. You know, in terms of these, you know, broccoli. You know, it, it's not really a part of the diet for the most part. But you know, we all know broccoli is wonderfully nutritious, but one can't survive on broccoli alone. No, and there, there's many, like, six-year-olds out there that'll argue the same thing. They right. <laughs> <laughs> and George Bush. And George Bush, that's yeah. right. He didn't eat his vegetables, that guy. <laughs> so a lot of this we're talking about in terms of the market brings us to financialization right. of, of the food system here. So this is what you are studying here in Guatemala. Uh, could you explain what you mean by financialization of a food system, and then we'll We'll ask you, what is it you're looking at specifically in Guatemala? Sure. I mean, financialization is, uh, you know, it's a contemporary buzzword, which reflects, uh, which is used to refer to various qualities of con uh, contemporary capitalism. Uh, three of those characteristics stand in, out in particular. One is this idea that profit-making in contemporary capitalist economies increasingly occurs in financial sectors. So rather than producing, say, goods and services, uh, GDP, income, whatever one, wants to, whatever one wants to refer to it as, is increasingly earned through uh, financial activities, be it speculating on, you know, mm -hmm. in, in the stock market or the bond market or uh, through giving out credit and so on here, right? I mean, the classic example is one could look at Industries, uh, firms like GM, General Motors, for instance, we all think of them as a firm that produces automobiles, and yet uh, throughout much of its recent history, uh, its sales of automobiles have been uh, eclipsed by the amount of revenues it's generating from car financing. So rather huh. than generating revenues on selling cars, it's generating revenues on financing those cars. Right. Now, having said that, GM sold off that branch of its, uh, uh, rather, it split up about five years ago or so. But we can even see that with a, com a company like Walmart, for instance, a major retailer, uh, where it's increasingly moving into financial services, be it uh, you know, offering checking accounts, mortgages. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, I think we're all familiar with going to the checkout uh, counter at the supermarket these days and what they're trying to sell you is mortgages and uh, travel insurance and so on here, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I remember when I was a kid, it was bubble gum and tablets, yeah. so, which are still there, but, you know, they're, what's really getting the prime, uh, prime spot there is these, uh, you know, uh, wow. various financial services. And, of course, you can get your, you know, you can get your Loblaws credit cards and, uh, you know, you get the points and so on that come along with it. Yep, that's right. And this is, so the point being is, I'm, I'm going way too long here, that's one dimension of financialization, profit-making increasingly occurring through financial activities versus productive activities. And one can look at that at a macro level as well, where financial enterprises like banks and investment banks and so on are increasingly dominating the overall profile of many, uh, what's the word one say here, more than more dominant, predominant right. economies. Okay. So that's one dimension of financialization. I'll try to be quick with the other two here. A second dimension is uh, this idea that, uh, I'm trying to remember, the one that's coming to my mind here is um, what's called the financialization of daily life. And this has to do with this idea that... Uh, Increasingly, you know, sort of your everyday needs um, are oftentimes or increasingly mediated through financial activities. So, you know, within much of modern history, a certain degree of security, for instance, was guaranteed by the, you know, by states, by employers, 
and be a sort of quote unquote welfare capitalism or right. Florida's capitalism, where a well, you know, your your employer, you know, insured you a pension, they provided you health insurance, and that was part of the, the compact, the social compact that the state that the firm would provide you with those guarantees. There was a certain security. You work for your employer, your employer will take care of you. That's right. And the state would do the same in terms of providing food stamps and things along those lines, uh, social security and so on here, right? But again, uh, within the contemporary era, a lot of those guarantees are being undermined, and increasingly individual citizens are being tasked with obtaining that security through their own financial activities. So the idea, rather than getting a guarantee, you can do this with, you know, individuals can have this financial savvy, and they can know how to play financial markets. So, you know, your, 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 your old age security doesn't come from a pension and social security so much as it comes from how do you as an individual invest your money? Right. Do you invest that accordingly, right? That's a financial activity. Um, you know, your health care isn't guaranteed by the state, by your employer. It's what you do with your health care spending account and how you decide to spend your money on your individual health care policy. Right. Insurance is a financial product, right? And so these are some very basic ideas here, right? Um, so I'm trying to figure out what do I mean? I'm trying to remember the third dimension of financialization. Um, but it's, it's really sounding yeah. like a lot of it is coming down to trying to uh, make sure that you, these day-to-day activities are effectively deep in a market of some kind, that, there, that there's, there's going to be some for-profit uh, activity with, within an individual's life. But also, as you say, it's about how the individuals investing or choosing the insurance <clears throat> back to that idea of choice. Right, right. It's back to choice, and it's by back, back to financial savvy, and like the individual knows best, mm-hmm. right? And you know, which it's choice is a wonderful thing, uh, providing you have the you ability know, to have it. I have a PhD in economics. I don't know what to do for my old age security. I can't imagine <laughs> you know many other people do either, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I mean, investment's a gamble, and it's not a guarantee, mm-hmm. right? So you've you've highlighted what this is: um, insurance being part of it. Back to Guatemala. Right. right, How how is this phenomena taking place here? Okay, so I mean, it's one could say it's in various ways here, right? But I mean, I think what we wanted to talk here is my today is my my current research here. Yes, please. And so what I've you know I've been doing quite a bit of research. This book you mentioned that I recently published published with Jennifer Clapp. We look at financialization with food and agriculture uh, in in the contemporary food system. Um, and it's a, it's a broad overview, but um, that really piqued my interest in a particular type of financial intervention uh, known as, of all things, index-based agricultural insurance. Index-based um, agricultural insurance. Index-based agricultural insurance, all right. which um, I realize does not you know, sound like the most sexy thing, but I, you know, I, I'm enth- I think it's very interesting, if I could explain a bit. I'm right? sure we will all be enthused. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, the idea, so the logic here, right? So we think of agricultural insurance. Historically, uh, well, for, a, for starters, agri- insurance firms have been very wary of insuring farmers. I mean, farmers, mm-hmm. as you mentioned earlier, face a tremendous amount of risk. Uh, markets for agricultural products are incredibly volatile. If it's a boom year, all farmers are having a boom year. Mm-hmm. They're producing a lot of crops, prices are going to plummet. Mm-hmm. If it's a crap year or bad harvest, nobody's producing anything and prices are going to rise. So inevitably, farmers' overall revenues are going to drop, be it high prices on a year, High prices and a low quantity sold, a lot sold at low prices. And so it makes it very difficult for farmers to repay loans. But in addition to that, of course, they're exposed to all sorts of environmental stresses, be it the weather, be it uh, pests, be it uh, plant diseases, um, and so on here, right? right? So it's just, you know, and moreover, farmers, you know, they take out a loan, 
at the beginning of the crop season, they buy their various inputs, they put it in the ground, it's exposed to all these various risks, and then they don't actually start selling that crop to, you know, depending on what the crop is, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine months down the year, down the road, or even longer if it's, say, a tree crop, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, oil palm three years, right? So it's, you know, for most financial service providers, they don't want to provide services to farmers. Um, that's certainly the case with insurance. Uh, insurance providers have been a bit worried of providing coverage to agricultural producers, so it's oftentimes they've been subsidized by the state or the state would provide this insurance. Um, but they certainly didn't want to insure small-scale farmers. No insurance company is going to find it profitable to insure some small-scale farmer operating in a very remote region on a very small plot of land, growing very low-value crops and a very small value of that. It's just simply they're not going to send some claims adjuster out to their field to determine the cause of loss, the value of loss, and so on. It's right. not worth their while. So what that's meant is small-scale farmers have historically been uh, excluded from insurance markets. Hmm. Um, so in this contemporary financialization is this idea that how are we going to fix vulnerability? We're going to do it through the offering of various financial products, be it the healthcare spending account and so on here, right? But this is a particular, this index-based agricultural insurance is a financial product particularly targeted at small-scale farmers. The logic is, you know, rather than having to send a claims adjuster to the field, let's look at variables which are correlated with agricultural performance. Oh, I see. Um, so, for instance, you know, if we think, you know, what, is, what do farmers need to grow their crops? Well, they certainly need rain, right? Mm-hmm. So, or they need, they don't, but they don't want too much rain. So if we look at these variables which are correlated with agricultural performance, rainfall, right? In the case of Guatemala, it is an index-based agricultural product, which is based upon three environmental measures. They look at rainfall, excessive rainfall in particular, or drought, and they look at earthquakes. Okay. So three variables that could ostensibly impact uh, agricultural performance, right? Mm-hmm. And the logic is here. So if, for instance, let's suppose we're experiencing excessive rainfall. So the rainfall is higher and higher than usual. Suddenly it reaches a, th- uh, a strike point, if you will. And any point above that as the rain continues to fall is going to be in a higher and higher payment up to that policy holder up to a particular maximum. Wow. Okay. So yeah. if it, they're, they're not sending people out to the fields, to the farms, they're just looking at they're measuring the, the, the measuring they're measuring the weather. Yeah, yeah. And uh, in the case of earthquakes, they're getting USGS or US Geological Society measurements of it's like a it's like a bloody uh, snow snow removal company in Montreal, right? They they you, you pay so much uh, if there's so many uh, centimeters of snow, but if it goes over that, then the bill really uh, increases. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Wow. Except it's supposed to be you know I mean returns to the policyholder, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. So are people buying in? to this form of insurance because if if the traditional methods were pretty much excluding uh-huh. uh, these these small you know agrarian uh, farms uh, is this new model taking off are, are people buying it in the Kuchimitani mountains <laughs> yes and no okay uh, one one key problem with you know and it's it, Guatemala is certainly not the first place to offer index insurance it's been very popular in India and Africa mm-hmm. that's where it was really pioneered but what they found in those countries was that agricultural producers are very reluctant to buy this insurance. Uh, they just don't see a whole lot of value in it. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes they're very poor and still are very reluctant to pay the, the premiums for this. And so what's happened over time is the providers of this insurance have become a little savvy. What they've said is what we need to do is bundle this with other things that farmers need. So, mm. for instance, in Africa, you can buy a bag of Syngenta seed. And in that bag of Syngenta seed is a little scratch card for an insurance policy 
and that insurance policy says, okay, if rain, you know, if, if, if your crop fails, we will insure you. We will, well, I'm sorry, if you're not if your crop fails. But if there's insufficient rainfall, we will give you a new bag of seed here, right? I should point out that that insurance policy was devised by uh, the Syngenta Foundation, the quote-unquote philanthropical arm of Syngenta, right? Right. So they bundle it with seeds, right? So farmers, mm -hmm. many farmers buy seeds. Um, or they'll bundle it with loans. Many farmers take out loans, and with a loan, you get this insurance. Or if right. a farmer enters a contract farming arrangement that they're going to grow, say, melons for an exporter. Right. The, the, in that contract is, we will give you this insurance, right? Mm -hmm. But ultimately, the farmers are paying for this. So they're buying the seed, they're paying a price premium. If they're taking out a loan, they're paying a premium on that. If they are in a contract arrangement, that's oftentimes taken out of what the contract company gives them at the end. Mm -hmm. um, in Guatemala here, these uh, index-based insurance policies are being bundled with loans, and that bundling yeah. goes back to your earlier point when you're discussing, you know, the the kind of the loblaws, the supermarket yeah. insurance, mortgage, uh, credit card points, whatever it is. You see that you see that so often where uh, if you wanted to get a student loan or a mortgage, uh, suddenly there's this whole collection of things. Uh, and insurances or warranties that you usually forget about half the time. Right, right, exactly. Mm -hmm. I mean, the nice one, one thing. Well, one thing about this uh, particular index insurance policy. So you asked me if farmers are buying it. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, the the product was launched in December of 2016. It's piloting in December of 2016. Um, it went nationwide in 2018. We're now January 2020. Mm -hmm. uh, but up to this point, uh, approximately uh, 12,000 policies have been sold. Mm -hmm. within the country, at least been bundled into loans. Um, I forget the actual amount, but uh, you know, a, a significant amount has been uh, insured as well. And I can't, um, uh, but I, I should point out that with these insurance policies, the way that they are playing out is, again, farmers receive payments. Those payments are contingent upon the, the amount of money that they borrow. Right. So it's based upon the loan. What they pay for this insurance is 5% of the value of their loan. Okay. Plus tax. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. And but that's so, not insignificant. And so then their payment, when it comes through, is, you know, let's suppose, once again, there's an excessive rainfall. It would be, you know, say, 3% of your loan will come through as an insurance payment. And again, you're dealing with, with the sort of the micro economies here. It, it's thin, the, the, the profit margin here, right? So if it's 5%, yeah. you're going to feel that. I mean, this is a country that uh, to, you know, for schools, for healthcare, everything costs something here. Right, right. And so this is just another cost. So the question then, does this, is this going to amplify vulnerabilities or will this actually increase security? Or do you know? Well, I mean, to date, nobody's really looked into that. This is one of my driving questions for my research in Guatemala right now. Um, as I've tried to stress in our earlier conversations here, we've, we're dealing with a, an incredibly stratified agrarian landscape here. Socioeconomic, there's, social and economic differences are tremendously yep. variated. Um, and the idea here, so if you roll out this financial product across this unequal agrarian landscape, is it going to amplify those socioeconomic differences, or is it going to help to mitigate or uh, to help to, to bring those yeah. differences together? Right, to sort of, um, and nobody really knows. I mean, you know, many of the proponents of this insurance, and I should point out, um, you know, I've I've worked quite closely with these providers of the insurance, and they're you know absolutely wonderful, well-intentioned individuals here, right? Sure. Um, my suspicion, however, is this is the wrong tool for the job. Okay. Um, this is my hunch. Yeah. And let me tell you why. Um, for starters, uh, if we think of what this insurance is, it's impossible to measure the rainfall on 
Quan's plot, which is on the outskirts of this municipio, you know, this municipality, which is quite large. Municipalities mm-hmm. are quite large in Guatemala. Um, compared to uh, a large-scale farmer Enrique, who is right near the city center, and maybe by, maybe even has an irrigated plot here. So let's suppose mm-hmm. there is a drought. Mm-hmm. Enrique has irrigation. Um, let's 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 put it this way. So let's suppose there's a drought, and the index is triggered. Enrique has irrigation. He's not going to suffer a loss, but he's still going to get that payment. Mm-hmm. Juan, on the outskirts of the town, um, he's also going to get a payment. But he's taken out a smaller loan, and what we're fi- what my research is showing thus far is oftentimes these payments, at best, mm-hmm. are covering the cost of the premium. Very oh, few right. farmers are getting payments that go beyond what they're actually. Pay- well, I shouldn't say very few, um, but uh, about half are getting payments that go beyond what they're actually paying in those premiums. But you know, over the course of the year, what are they getting in return? Uh, the returns that are where people are exceeding their premium, the vast majority of them are in the range of uh, zero, you know, one to thirteen U.S. dollars over the course of a year. So many of these policyholders, they might be getting payments, mm-hmm. but they don't even know. Why? Because the payments are going first and foremost to paying off their loans. They're not going into these farmers' pockets. There we go. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, the point here I'm getting at is Enrique, he's got a large loan. It's paying it off. He's not suffering any loss anyhow. He's okay, right? But Juan, you know, yeah, he doesn't have to pay as much back on his loan, but he's still not able to feed his family. He still doesn't have the crop. Um, the drought's going much beyond, you know, say those commercial, uh, excuse me, those uh, commercial crops, but also subsistence crops. You know, I think I think this is a this is a great project because it's you know just the way you painted it out there shows that this could be too broad stroked if it's if this index is the tool to to offer uh, compensation as opposed to actually being specific to the local geography. That is going to be something that will. Uh, likely cause these these tensions. Right, right. And indeed, and I mean, we also have to keep in mind here that, uh, you know, it might be a drought and the index wasn't triggered, right? Juan might still suffer a crop loss mm-hmm. um, and, you know, the index wasn't triggered. He doesn't even get a payment that time around. Mm-hmm. The idea is this is supposed to provide security. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, Alejandro Posada uh, did a fantastic research on an index-based insurance policy in India and the, the farmers there referred to it as a village lottery. You know, huh. It's like somebody might win, somebody might lose. You don't yeah, really know. Yeah. And this has to do with the fact that index-based insurance isn't insurance. It's not a guarantee. It's not a guarantee of security. It's not a guarantee of payment. It's a derivative. Yeah. You're getting your payment based upon the weather, right? Oh, my God. Yeah. It's, it's, this just popped in my head. Do you remember that pretty atrocious Canadian airline, uh, Canada 3000? Do you remember that one? I don't. Well, I'm glad you don't because if, if you do remember it, 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 would, it would give you night terrors uh, to to be on that. But they used to have uh, a scheme where if it snowed so much between a certain period, then they would just give away free flights. Is that right? Mm-hmm. But it was index-based. And I mean, yeah. it had to basically uh, be back-to-back blizzards in downtown Toronto for a week before they would actually do it. But one year, apparently, they they did have to give away a few flights. But, Is that right? Mm-hmm. But it's just it's this idea. It feels, like you're, <laughs> it feels like a bit of dice rolling. Yeah. It, well, you know, the interesting thing you say that, I went to an insurance fair where they were trying to sort of, you know, encourage farmers to buy this insurance policy a couple of yeah. years back. And they had these various games where they're trying to sort of teach financial literacy. And one of them was throwing this big dice, to- toss it in, in the air and seeing where you land as you're going down the, the Candyland-like <laughs> board, right? <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. So we'll, we'll put all the money on black. We'll hope for the best. Spin the wheel. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Ryan, so this is, this is a really, I think it's exciting. You're just going to head off. 
uh, in a couple of days, you've got a grad student who's going to join you. Uh, you're going to talk to people. You're going to um, you know, figure out if this is something that uh, is problematic or to the benefit. So I think your research is going to be opening up a very important discussion in this financialization theme within the country. And I guess the last question I have for you is doing research in Guatemala. You've been doing research here for 20 years uh, for startup academics, for students who are just getting into the game. Any advice for coming to Guatemala or a country like Guatemala you know, to do research? You know, it's a great question. I mean, I think <laughs> I came down, you know, I was, I was lost by and large. I had a couple names from my PhD supervisor and, you know, I went and spoke with these people. You know, these were people that had worked in agriculture and they in turn turned me to other people. But I mean, where, where I found my research project was I, you know, I was talking to one of these farm, you know, people, these agricultural administrators. He said, oh, you should go talk to this farmer. And I went and talked to the farmer and he was amazing, right? Mm -hmm. And I was just talking to the farmer and I had, you know, it wasn't what I was planning to do my research on, but that initially, right, I was wanting to do my research on land reform of all things. But talking to this guy, he really drew me in. So the point being is I think just talk to as many people as you can. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that sounds, you know, obvious and yet do the obvious. Um, but beyond that, um, I, I, you know, for me, I, I was traveling around a lot and what, where I really, my research really came from is yes, I had some ideas coming down, but when my research really came into shape was what I did is I bought a hoe I walked around this village where this, this farmer was that I met, right? I walked around the village and I said, you know, just people would be planting corn. And it's like, hey, I'm a graduate student. I want to learn about ag agriculture here. Can you, you, would you like, would you mind showing me how you farm? And you're working out in the field with those farmers, talking to them. And when you, when you hear that, you hear the way they talk about their daily life and what they're thinking of. I think that, you know, for me, that was so incredibly influential in helping me to, to inform, uh, you know, I think really relevant research questions. So talking to people, and I mean, don't just talking to people in agriculture and these administrators, but talking to actual people on the ground, be it uh, farmers or if it's whatever other area you want to talk into workers, mm -hmm. talk to the workers, right? Mm -hmm. These are the people you want to get their perspective from. That's great. And I think, uh, you know, you still have relations here uh, with these communities. We've heard so many other scholars this week at the uh, Conference on Latin American Geography here in Antigua who, who you know, can just draft up the, the photos and the... The, the memoirs and the journals from 20 years ago and that these relationships, they last. Oh, yeah. You know, when you are yeah, yeah. sharing that experience of actually, you know, with a hoe over your shoulder and there's dirt on your hands, uh, there's no way that that can't do anything other than form really strong relations. Yeah, no, it's, it's so true. Brian Isaacson, thanks so much for joining us on GDP today, the Global Development Primer. Uh, fascinating discussion about insurance. I never thought I would say those words in that way. <laughs> You're not alone. But, uh, but this is actually uh, truly uh, an important uh, area of research, and uh, I wish you all the best for your uh, field research season ahead. Thank you, Bob, and keep up the great work. It was a fantastic series. All right, thanks, Ryan. Yeah.